are in Revelation chapter 8 today. As we continue moving on, before we get into the Bible study, I want to say thank you again to everybody who helped get the upper room all ready and helped us move yesterday. We uh, got all settled in last night. It was awesome. It was like a whirlwind at our house. Trucks showed up, people went in and took everything out and then did the same thing here. It was amazing. And so appreciate everybody's help and uh, we're stoked to be here on the property now. So um, back in chapter six, we saw the scroll, the title deed to the earth being opened as the Lord Jesus began to break each seal. And with each seal, we saw a direct result either in heaven or on the earth. Now, if you remember, six seals have been opened so far. And uh, then chapter 7 is like this pause, right? So we've got this action of the seals being broken and what's taking place with each one. And especially the sixth seal where just chaos breaks out on the earth. And then there's like this side scene that happens in between the sixth seal and the seventh, where we saw that there were 144,000 tribes of, or from the tribe of Israel, from the tribes of Israel, and an angel marked 144,000 of them with the seal of the living God. And, and there were some good questions that came along with these things. Just, as always, I love uh, if you guys want to shoot me any questions that you have, text them to me or email them to me. And, uh, and I'll address them. So um, one of the questions was, is that when it comes to these 144,000, why are they chosen? There's a, certainly a lot more than 144,000 in Israel. Why are these chosen? I don't know. It's a great question. I've asked the same thing myself, you know, um, because these are people that get saved after the rapture. After the tribulation begins, these people get saved. Why do they get chosen? Honestly, I think it's the same way we get chosen. It's by grace. There isn't anything they can point to and say, I've earned it, I've worked enough, I kept enough of the law. It's by grace. That's my personal belief, right? Because that's how we get chosen as well, right? We can't say, well, of course God chose me, look, right? We look at it and go, God chose me. Can you believe it, right? That's, that's the idea, and I believe it will be the same for them. But along those lines, another question that came in was, why did I, I made a comment last week that Israel is born uh, into the family of God. We're adopted, right? And, and chapter 7 has a lot, well, cha- really chapter 6 and 7 have a lot that are about God keeping his promise to Israel, you know, Ryan's song, Faithfulness, I kept thinking, boy, that is just what we talked about last week. God's faithfulness to Israel, and this is, the tribulation itself is part of that faithfulness. That he is completing his promise to them. And this promise began, why did I say that they were born? Well, because God in the Old Testament was only dealing with Israel. He started with Abraham, right? And he continued through Abraham's line to work in Israel. But he wasn't working on a global scale. And we kind of forget that because in in the New Testament, in the new covenant that we have, it is a global scale. Everybody's welcome. Everybody 
uh, is, is, can be brought into the family of God. In the Old Testament, everyone was still welcome, but they had to be adopted into Israel in order to be in the family of God. Right? God was working in Israel, his children. He called them his children. It's his nation. Right? And through Israel, the world would be blessed. So that's why they're, they're in, a, in a different category. I wouldn't say a different relationship, but certainly a longer relationship than us Gentiles who have been adopted in afterwards. And then one other question that came up, it's not concerning the 144,000, but somebody asked, hey, you know, after the rapture, is anyone even going to notice we're gone, right? There's a worldwide earthquake. There's all the chaos that ensues. Are people even going to notice that, that every Christian in the world is gone? I don't think so at first. You know, I think at first it's just going to be chaos, craziness. People are gone, dead, washed away, missing. But I think that after things kind of start to take order again, then there's, it's going to surface that we are gone, right? That there's, there's not enough bodies. A billion people, say, are, have disappeared from the earth. I think there's also going to be eyewitnesses. They're going to be going, hey, I was in church, and everyone was gone but me. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> and now I want to go to church, right? Yeah. So there, there are going to be those people who come out and explain, this is what happened. I saw it happen. So great questions last week. Um, but these 144,000, again, they're going to be something different. Man, they are, they've got the hand of God and an anointing upon them that I don't think we've ever seen, or at least I can't think of an example that we've seen uh, in the past. It's going to be like 144,000 Billy Grahams unleashed on the earth. And they are unstoppable. There's 144,000 at the beginning. When we see them towards the end, there's still 144,000. Not one has been lost. And so God is going to use them in a huge way to bring people to Christ, and I believe also to help Israel understand and bring them to that light bulb moment three and a half years through the tribulation. Um, we also saw the huge multitude of those who have come out of the tribulation. Uh, we've seen it in two places. So we saw that when one of the uh, seals was broken, there were those who were under the altar. And it said uh, that they were those that had lost their lives for the testimony of Jesus Christ, right? And they asked, how much longer, Lord, right? And he tells them, until the full number is brought in. Well, I don't believe that this is the full number that we looked at in chapter 7, but it's a lot. And so again, these are people that have lost their lives during the beginning of the tribulation uh, for their faith in Jesus Christ. But I, I love the fact that they're not demanding justice and they're not speaking with regret about decisions they made for Christ. Instead, they are singing a song of salvation and of praise. That God is faithful, that he has, that he has saved them, right? And now we come to chapter 8, the breaking of the seventh seal, which then leads into the seven trumpets uh, to follow. So, Let's pray, and then we will get into chapter 8. Lord God, as always, we have come here to hear from you, to know you better, to understand your word, and we pray that you would speak to our lives today, that as we study the future events that are still out ahead of us, Lord, that it would change who we are and how we understand you today, that uh, we would be changed. And we, we love you, we give you this time, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So chapter 8, 
the book of Revelation, starting in verse 1. It says, When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. And then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. And then the angel took the censer filled and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it to the earth. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. And then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. Now, in light of the six seals uh, that have already been opened, again, there there was a, a result with each one, right? So we saw the four riders of the apocalypse, and we saw the martyrs that I just mentioned, and and then in the sixth seal, we see the rapture of the church, a worldwide earthquake, the beginning point on earth of the tribulation is the sixth seal. And the seventh seal can seem a little anticlimactic compared to those. I mean, you've got these intense events that are like, they're growing in intensity, and you get to the sixth seal, and, and there's this worldwide earthquake and all of these things, and then the seventh seal is silence. Hmm. You know, I don't know. But if we... Forget what that whole scene looks like that's taking place in heaven. Again, the Lord opening the title deed to the earth. Um, And and the importance of that, again, is we need to to understand that God has always had full authority over the earth. But there in the garden, he gives authority over the earth to Adam. So the earth is still God's property, but basically he leased it to Adam, right? And that's the Jewish mindset of this scroll and the title deed to the earth, all those things, that that Adam had the lease. But when he chose to listen to the devil rather than God, he handed that lease over. And now it is being redeemed. That the Lord is taking back that which has always been his and bringing this age of sinful man and the devil's reign here on earth to an end. And he's doing it with, with breaking each one of these seals. Um, and, and again, the scene that's happening there in the throne room of God, it's been growing in, in intensity, right? First we see the throne and we see the, the sea of glass and, and all of these things and the four living creatures and then 10,000 upon 10,000 angels singing this song and And now the great multitude that cannot be numbered also singing. And and we're told here that there's lightnings and thunderings proceeding from the throne. And all of these things building, building, building in intensity. And the seventh seal is broken and silence. See, that changes the whole sense of what's happening. There's this giant choir in heaven singing out of praises. And at the breaking of the seventh seal, just silence. And not just for a moment. John says it's about a half an hour. Now, why he gives that, I don't know. But I think if you were in that, of course, from a humanly perspective, the idea of a half an hour of silence is a long time. Again, especially coming from this intensity, right? If you've ever been like 
to a live orchestra, like a huge orchestra. And they build like that, and it gets more and more and more, and they'll have a break. Just a matter of seconds, but it seems to last forever, right? Now, what's the reason for this silence? I think there's a couple things going on here. And again, it would be easy to roll right past it and not think much of it. Uh, but I think it's important that we get an understanding of what this silence in heaven means or the different things that it means. Um, I think, first of all, it is heavenly awe. Again, this season of sin and death and the enemy having authority to some degree over the earth, it's coming to an end. This is the beginning of the end. And the breaking of the seven seals, as we'll see, goes on, and it's pointed to here that then right behind that are given seven trumpets to the seven angels. Again, the intensity is about to get more. We look at the, the seven seals and go, well, that's intense stuff. The seven trumpets are more. And then after that, the bowls of wrath are more. And so this intensity is growing. And so because of the trumpets that are about to be sounded, heaven is silent. And I, we've talked about this before, but this isn't the kind of trumpets we think of. You know, we think of the trumpets being the musical instrument. You know, play jazz or whatever, and it's a pleasant thing. In John's day, the trumpet was only used for two things. One, to announce the coming of the king and the declaration of war. Both of those would inspire fear in those who hear it, right? And this means both, right? The king is on his way and war has been proclaimed. And so these trumpets being sounded, it isn't a pleasant sound, it's a terrifying sound. And again, this silence is pointing towards that, that this pause and silence are speaking of the coming judgment and justice and war. And even as the, the prayers of the saints, um, jumping a little bit ahead, but he takes this censer and he casts it to the earth, right? It's like this is the direct result of those prayers, is this justice being carried out. And actually, that, that is the second reason. I believe that this silence in heaven is a direct result of the power of prayer. Prayer is a confusing thing to me. There are people that are, are just prayer warriors. They just get it. And I have so much admiration for those that, I mean, when you ask someone to pray, you know they are taking that to the throne of God, right? And they're not going to let up until they get an answer. And to me, that's just amazing. That's not me. I, I, I've always wanted to be that person. I think I just have too short of an attention span that, that when I start to pray about something, I find myself just so distracted all the time. I'm like, oh, wait, 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 I was praying about that, you know. And, and, and I think a lot of us have maybe a struggle with prayer of wondering what, how does it fit in? What does it mean? What's the power behind it? What's the importance behind it? I think this picture, what's being shown to John, what's being given to us, is a great reminder of, of the power of prayer itself. As God is bringing this silence, like I said, I, I think it has a lot to do that the prayers of his people are being brought before him. Now, if you remember, um, the, the throne room of God there in heaven is pictured for us in the temple 
that was given to, or the instructions for the temple that were given to Moses. Remember, he tells Moses, God tells Moses, uh, do this exactly the way I tell you. It's the model that you've been shown. And why that's important is because it was a representation of God's throne room in heaven, right? And we've talked about some of those similarities, how things line up, um, that the uh, seven ministries of the Holy Spirit, the menorah has seven, seven lights on it, the throne of God is the mercy seat that was over the Ark of the Covenant. Well, just outside the Holy of Holies was the altar of incense. And it was always to be a picture of prayer. That when the incense was offered, it was the idea that this is the prayer of not only the priests, but of also of all of Israel that were rising up before the Lord. But one of the things that I also think is, is really cool is that that incense that was offered could be found nowhere else. It was against the law to produce that incense or to copy it in any way. It was one of a kind. So you couldn't leave the temple and go to the temple you know, gift shop and buy your little vial of incense. It was one of a kind. And again, I think that's important as it comes to prayer, is that our prayer, prayers are unique to the Lord. Even though we see it in, in kind of a group, all the prayers are the same. There's a uniqueness. There's a special fragrance about each prayer that comes from us. It can't be copied. And so just because I don't pray like some other person prays, as long as I pray, that's what's important. As long as I'm seeking to know the Lord more and be in His presence and, and get Him. And I think that's one of the greatest things about prayers. It's not so much about getting what we want. It's about getting me in line with Him. It's about getting me connected to His personality. It's about me laying down my life, my expectations, my ideas, and taking on His. Right? And something supernatural happens in prayer. I don't think it happens to the same degree in other places. But this incense this was of the highest value because it was one of a kind. And I've talked to a lot of people, and I've been in, in this position, I think we all have from time to time, to go, what does it matter what I pray? I've prayed and I've prayed, and I have not gotten the answer. Is God even listening? Is, does prayer even work? Well, of course, in that frustration, in that place, it's easy to just go, oh, it doesn't even work. I don't even know why I'm praying about this. But when we step back, I think it's, it's really clear. Certainly, Scripture is clear about it, uh, the importance of prayer. The fact of the matter is, every prayer gets answered. But most often, either we get the answers and we don't understand it, I think even more often than that, we get the answers, but we don't like it. And so we go, oh, well, I'm not, I'm not getting the answer. Well, you're not getting the answer you want. And that's a huge difference, right? When our kids would come to us and ask for something, we go, no. <laughs> they didn't like that answer, right? And, and sometimes that's, that's how the Lord has to be with us. I think that every single prayer gets answered in one of three ways, or maybe you can think of it one, in three, one of three categories, right? There's yes, there's no, and there's wait. And we like one out of three of those, right? We, we like yes. And if we don't get yes, then we tend to complain, we tend to argue with the Lord or, or whatever. But uh, yeah, yes is our favorite to get. And, and I think James 
uh, chapter 4, where James talks about this, uh, we are to, to seek after a yes answer. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Right? We shouldn't feel bad that we pray about something we desire to get a, a, a yes answer. I think that's the right place to start. But James, in chapter 4, says, you do not have because you do not ask. I know for myself, a lot of times I make prayer the last line of defense. I do everything on my own. I work super hard or I, I strive and I strain. And then I'm like, why isn't this working? And, and usually someone will go, well, have you prayed about it? <sighs> no, but I will. You know, <laughs> And James is like, look, just pray about it. The reason you don't have, the reason you're wearing yourself out is because you're not just seeking the Lord and asking him. You know, he's a good father. He wants to answer your prayers. But he's going to answer them with what's right and best for you more than what you want. Right? And so, first of all, we are to be those seeking a yes answer in prayer, um, not trying to do things in our own strength, but really desiring his will above our own. Now, the next uh, couple, like I said, are not our favorite. Of course, uh, the opposite of yes is no. And we don't like hearing the no. Um, and it could be that we have the wrong, we're asking the wrong thing, or we have the wrong motive. Right? That's why right after what James says there in chapter 4, he says, you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss. That you would spend it on your own pleasure. Right? So it might look like the right thing, but there's some wrong motive in us that, that's trying to do the runaround God, you know, that we want to receive something that we might spend it on our own pleasures. And again, like a good father, he's going to go, no, you can't have that. I know you think you need this, but you don't need this. And in looking back, there are so many times I'm thankful that I got a no. In fact, all of them, but specific ones. Specific ones where I was just so sure I knew what I needed. I'm so sure what had to take place, what had to happen. And I would tell God, it's like, look, you, you got to trust me on this one, right? This is the right thing for you to do. And he's like, no. Oh. And I'm so thankful that he did what was right instead of doing what I thought needed to happen. Now, it's not always wrong motive. It's not always asking for the wrong thing. And I think this is why prayer can be tricky. Because we can go, well, I think I've got the right motives in what I'm praying. And, and I, I, I think it's a right thing. I think it's in line with the Word of God. I think it's in, right, in line with His character. But He doesn't seem to be answering. Well, and that's where we get to the third one of wait. It might very well be a right thing. It might be in God's will. It's just not in His timing yet. And man... I think in some ways that can be the hardest one. A definite yes or a definite no, I get it. I might not always like it, but I get it. But a wait, I hate being in a holding pattern. Oh, well, is it like wait for a day or is it like wait for a year? Is it wait for longer than that? <laughs> you know? And then I start freaking out about that. I think about um, as far as a great example of wait is the parents of John the Baptist. Zechariah and Elizabeth. Remember there in uh, Luke chapter 1, that Zacharias goes in to the temple to offer the incense. And an angel meets him and says, tells him, Zacharias, your prayers have been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear a son. And even Zacharias is like, what? 
My wife is old. I'm old. <laughs> what are you talking about? Those were prayers prayed long before that. So long that they had given up all hope of them ever being fulfilled. And Zacharias argues with the angel. That's how long those prayers had been prayed, right? He got a wait and didn't know it. He thought it was a no, but it was actually a wait. And all those years later, the angel tells him, oh no, we heard all those prayers. The Lord has heard your prayers and they've been in his inbox until the appropriate timing. For me, again, I want action. I tend to be very goal-driven that if I start a project, I like to see that project completed. I think I do the same thing with prayer. It's like, well, I prayed this. I want the result, right? And so the wait can be hard. But I think changing our perspective to go, Lord, you are going to do what's best. You're trying to get me in line with what you're doing. And so I want to seek your will. I want to seek you for a yes, but I'll trust you with a no or a wait. I believe that prayer, our prayers are like weapons prepared for battle. They are powerful. But it is God who knows when to bring them about for victory. We don't. And so when we send a request before the Lord, He knows exactly how to handle it. And for us to trust in His character, to trust that He's going to do this right, man, should put us at peace and not discourage us from prayer at all. Your prayers have been heard. And we see here in Revelation that this angel is given much incense along with the prayers of all the saints, not just some, not just some during the tribulation, all of the saints. The prayers, every single time a person is prayed for healing, for redemption of this earth, of this age of man, those prayers have gone into his inbox. And now the time to answer them and to bring justice has come. This fallen world will be made right. And all those prayers have not been for nothing. They've been heard, and now they rise before the Father, this sweet-smelling incense, and as they do, all of heaven goes silent. Again, I think that tells us the power the Lord, the Lord God himself, as the prayers of the saints rise before him, he goes, Shh, I'm listening. And we should never buy into the enemy's lie that our prayers don't do any good. Or that our prayers aren't being heard. Or that it doesn't matter what we pray for, God's going to do whatever he wants anyway. No, he hears them. And they are precious and powerful and important to him. Verse 7 says, The first angel sounded, and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood. And they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the grass was burned up. 
Then the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became as blood. And a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Then the third angel, wait a second, I've lost my place. No, verse 10. Then the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. And the name of the star is Wormwood. And a third of the waters became Wormwood. And many men died from the water because it was made bitter. And then the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened, and a third of the day it did not shine, and likewise the night. And then I looked, and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpets of the three angels who are about to sound. The trumpets begin to sound. And like the seals, again, there is a direct result with each one. Um, and some say, you know, there are these ideas out there. Uh, we really talked about a lot at the beginning when we started Revelation. That some people will change the order, will change the timeline, will take things from one place to another. And this is one of those sections where people say, well, this is all symbolic. None of this is actually taking place in a real physical sense. Um, or they scramble up the timing and the placement. Um, well, here's the thing, and it's important to know this with all Scripture, but especially as we study the book of Revelation, that anytime something is symbolic, it's seen as symbolic somewhere else in Scripture. So we talk about the Lord um, Jesus is armed with a sword, right? And we know from several different places in Scripture, the sword represents His Word, right? This isn't just a one-off where somebody goes, oh, well, yeah, that's Jesus with a sword. That sounds good. It's seen throughout the New Testament, right? It's even seen in the Old Testament. And so whenever there's something symbolic, it's never a one-off. It's always found to be in other places in Scripture. And so to dismiss something and go, well, this is all just symbolic. It can't be understood. Um, that's the wrong direction. Again, God doesn't want to hide his word from us. He wants to reveal it to us. And so it may take a little digging, may take a little uh, study to find those other places. But in fact, they are obvious when they're symbolic. Um, and if it's not that way, then we just take it in a straightforward manner. Right. It says a giant mountain was on fire and it fell in the sea. OK, I'll go with that. Right. Why try and turn it into something that it's not? Or try and uh, come up with some other things to try and explain it. And so with the first four judgments, uh, they are of an ecological, 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 they infect the earth, right? And, <laughs> and so with all of them, uh, you know, it's, it's directly the earth, the, the planet, uh, the ecosystem, a third of the trees and grass, a third of the sea, third of the water, a third of the sun and the moon and the stars. Um, now, a lot, uh, some people will try and say that, you know, these are only symbolic or maybe they're all man-made. You know, they try and again dismiss them. 
But that's the first four, and then the others will be upon mankind themselves. When the first one sounds, the result is hail and fire being cast to the earth, and it says, and they were mingled with blood. Now, it may very well be that the hail and the fire uh, caused the result of blood, right? That them falling to the earth, striking cities, striking people. Um, but again, we're not completely sure of all that that means. Third of the trees and the grass that burned up. And, and this, part of this could be man-made. Part of it could be a natural event, a meteor shower, a meteor storm, asteroids hitting the earth, those kinds of things. Uh, a couple of things point to that. Uh, others say nuclear bombs and radiation, chemicals. It's all possible, right? But I think it's also important for us to know it's not just natural events. These are of a supernatural nature. That these are the judgments upon earth. Now, can God use natural events? Of course he can. But to try and explain them away as only being natural or only being the effects or uh, directly a direct result of mankind is to miss out on the supernatural aspect of what's taking place here with each one of them. The second trumpet there in verse 8 says something like a great mountain. Again, this could be a meteor falling to earth. Whatever it is, it's hugely destructive. Even John, as he sees it, he doesn't just say it's a rock. He goes, it was a mountain. <laughs> it was massive, this huge thing falling into the sea, and it was on fire. So this huge event takes place. It kills a third of everything in the sea, and it, and it destroys a third of all of the ships. Uh, whatever it is, again, those along any coastline, it's not going to be good for them. Tidal waves and destruction. Um, again, as people try and explain this away sometimes, they'll say, well, this is probably only speaking of the Mediterranean Sea or the Sea of Galilee. Because, of course, that's all John knew about. And I, I think this is an important point. It's a little bit of a sidetrack, and I can see why some people would say that. But here's the thing. John is not taking this message from the Lord, then figuring out what it means to him and delivering it to us. John's the mailman. He's taking the message from the Lord and giving it to us, even though he doesn't understand it all, right? So John isn't going, oh, well, the only sea that I know of is the Mediterranean. It must just be that. He's not changing God's word. He's not interpreting it for us. He's taking what's given to him, and he's delivering it. Now, while John might have limited knowledge, a limited viewpoint, God does not. And everything else in the book of Revelation is on a global level. So he isn't just speaking of these judgments and these things taking place around Israel or just in the Middle East. This is worldwide. And I can't think of any reason that this would be seen as anything different. Now he says that the name of this mountain is, oh wait, I jumped ahead. The third trumpet sounds, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch there in verse 10. On a third of the rivers, and springs of water, and the name was Wormwood. Wormwood just means poison. You know, uh, 
Again, people try and take that in some weird direction sometimes. It just means poison. And even the word bitter uh, speaks of poison. So when it says that the water became bitter, it doesn't just mean bad tasting. It doesn't just mean salt water or something like that, that they became poisonous. Again, people try and explain and go, well, it's a nuclear fallout from a bomb or it's some other type of chemical uh, warfare. Could be. Then again, it could be something that's unseen by man, but John sees from heaven, like the four riders that went out. Uh, as it talks about a star that fell from heaven. The, the wording there is similar to speaking of heaven being, or Satan being cast from heaven to the earth. Um, and again, it's just a possibility that this might be a judgment that isn't necessarily seen by man. Maybe it is, maybe it's not, but the result is that a third of the water is made poisonous. Again, on a worldwide level, that's huge. So the first trumpet... Uh, from all of the fires and all of the grass and trees being burned up, there'd be this huge cloud of smoke. The second trumpet, all of the, a third of every animal in the sea dying would be this constant wave of death and destruction and washing up onto the shores and all of that would bring terrible disease. And each one of these brings like this horrible downward spiral with it, right? So it isn't just an, a single event. It's the event and everything that would follow from that event. And then on top of that, the world's fresh water supply is cut by a third. And we're going to see this in Revelation, that the, the supplies on a worldwide level are cut again and again and again, until finally the world kind of, those who are left, come together at Armageddon, the plains of Megiddo, to battle over the resources that are left. And so this is the beginning of things being removed from the earth. And then the fourth trumpet, in verse 12. It says, the sun and the moon and the stars were struck. Um, which could simply mean that there's a third less light coming through, right? We've seen plenty of things that would explain dust and smoke and debris and pollution and all these things breaking loose into the, air, into the atmosphere. Um, but it, it could also mean, not just that there's less sun coming through, but that when the sun should be shining or when the the stars should be seen when the moon should be reflecting the light of the sun. There's just darkness instead. And we go, well, well that seems weird. Why, why would that happen? Well, there's actually uh, some very interesting parallels between these judgments and the judgments that God performed on Egypt. And if you remember that there in Exodus 10, one of those judgments was darkness. That that there was no light at all in the land of Egypt. The Israelites had, had light, but Egypt did not. And there's a description, and I tell you what, it creeps me out every time I read it, that it says that that darkness could be felt. It's not just darkness like we think of darkness. It's a supernatural darkness, that it was tangible. There was something to it that you could feel it on your skin. And I wonder if it isn't, this that's happening again, right? That while they could look at other things and go, oh, well, it's dust, it's this, it's that. No, the sun should still be shining, and instead there is a darkness that can be felt on the whole earth. Again, whatever ways we want to kind of look at this and think, well, it could be these other things, we can't forget that there is the supernatural hand of God upon all of it. In verse 13, 
An angel cries out and says, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth. It is one woe for each trumpet that is remaining. And woe simply means dread and despair. Those are words we don't use a lot (laughs) when we describe things. But that's the intensity. It isn't just like, oh no, too bad for you. It's dread and despair for everyone who is on the earth for the things that are about to happen. For the three remaining trumpet blasts. Again, these are, these are intense things. And while we can look at them and go, I can't even picture what this is going to look like, we need to know that there is a reason for them to take place. That, as I've mentioned in the past, that this is the final shaking of mankind. This is God bringing everyone to the point of the decision of who Jesus is. That there isn't any more of like, ah, I don't know, he seems like a good guy. You are either for him or you are against him, and there's nothing in between. And these judgments are part of that. Now again, the good news is there's still repentance available. People can still be saved. Even in these horrible situations, they can turn to God, they can be forgiven of their sin, they can be counted on among those in heaven. And so there's still good news available. And it's going to continue to go out over the entire earth. You know, for us, we could look at that and go, okay, that's a good reminder for us. And it really, almost every chapter as we study through Revelation will have this same message of his his return is soon. Time is short. We need to use our time wisely, right? But I think from today along with that is that we need to remember our prayer is important and powerful. I think of those people that prayed for my salvation. I think of people that, that approached the throne of God on my behalf, that my eyes would be open. And, and I, I forget to pray that for other people. I think it's up to us, again, to attack the gates of hell with all we have until we're taken away. And prayer is the greatest weapon that we are given, right? And so for us to take it seriously and go, Lord, my prayers count. I believe your word. They, you say they count. You say that silent, or heaven goes silent when they are spoken and that they have great power. Lord, I'm going to trust you that that's true, and I'm going to start praying for salvation for the people in my lives. And so that's your assignment for this week is that you would look at the lives around you, the people in your life, family that you have. And again, it doesn't have to be some long two-hour prayer. Hey, if you're into that, awesome. But remember to pray for them. Take time. If you need to make a little list, make a little list. And take God at His word that your prayer has power. And begin praying for the salvation of others, that they might be saved and avoid all of this that we've just read about. Right? that they would be taken up with us when the Lord comes for His church, that we would trust in His will and His timing to bring all of that about. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.